Hello and welcome to another edition of Heart of Healthcare. My name is Dr. Jan Bonhoeffer, and these podcasts are about helping physicians restore balance in their lives so we can co-create a medical system that benefits everyone. A quick reminder that you can find more information about our nonprofit, Heart-Based Medicine, and the work we do to support healthcare professionals at heartbasedmedicine.org. Welcome to the Heart of Healthcare podcast, exclusive interview with our special guest, Pamela Spence, medical herbalist, to talk about the lost art of convalescence. Hey, Pamela, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Really looking forward to this conversation. It is so important. Not only personally did I just learn a lot about the meaning and the value of convalescence as somebody who is used to, you know, drive harder and push harder and go further and kind of work hard and play hard. And um, here is actually um, a conversation about convalescence and do we really understand convalescence and does convalescence mean, Hey, you're going to be up on your feet quicker if you push a little harder or are there other principles around this? And so let's unpack this a little bit. When we think about why, why do we even get to talk about this? (laughs) So we're looking at an environment where um, the we're kind of in a breakneck situation for many people, right? It's very, very tough for many people at the moment. And the general spirit is we need to get through a crisis. We need to push harder and we need to drive efficiency. We have financial constraints, we have legal constraints, we have social constraints, and we need to kind of pull ourselves together and, and manage to Sometimes the word fight is even used, right? We need to fight, struggle our way through this. That's the environment right now. How do you, what do you perceive where you are right now with patients? Where are we? What is the starting position? Yeah, so I think I think a lot of that is absolutely true. We have come through an unprecedented event. We are, we look like we're nearing, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. People are exhausted. Um, they have, you know, particularly looking at colleagues who work in mainstream healthcare, which as a medical herbalist, I do not, um, you know, I'm looking, I'm watching them nearing burnout. I'm also seeing patients who have had COVID and who have perhaps now got long COVID. So they are really struggling with their energy levels. And there is this, this clash between our society and the way it functions and its requirement for us to get back on the horse and get back to work and carry on regardless. And our body's physical need to rest and recuperate after, if you want to use that analogy, after a battle, right? And particularly for people who were affected by thinking of COVID now, who were affected by COVID early on in the pandemic with the first wave or second, Um, where it was perhaps more severe um, and we didn't know what to do with them. (laughs) And so I think there's this huge clash between the expectation that we should be able to get back on the horse and just keep going. And sometimes our bodies are just not able to let us do that. Mm. So I see lots of people frustrated, worried, um, um, not able to, and also because we haven't had our usual holidays. So I talk a lot to my patients about resilience. So our our markers in the year, we have certain markers in the year. I'm talking very much about our, you know, sort of Northern European um, uh, culture here, because that's what I know. 
we have markers in the gear where we build resilience. And one of our most important cultural markers is our holiday in the sun, right? And we know we, we drop everything, we have downtime, we get a good amount of vitamin D, we relax, maybe we have one too many cocktails, we swim, we see different things, and, and we come back refreshed. And one of the things I really see right now, and why the idea of convalescence has come so much to the fore for me, is that we have not had any resilience. And in the middle of winter, we have resilience because we meet our families, we have parties, we celebrate Christmas and New Year and all of those things. And that builds our resilience. And we haven't had that in its normal form. So now our bodies are really noticing that, I think. And it's interesting that this very stressful period that we've gone through has kind of created a bit of a social divide, right? Some were really accelerated, like in the healthcare system and the, uh, in the, in, in several industries, we had a, we had a severe acceleration of everything. And in other areas, um, there was a complete stop or deceleration, if not complete stop. Yeah. And so people had a very, very different experience of, of this period. How do you, what do you observe here? So what I see is actually some tension between the people on both areas of that, you know, divide. I remember going into a supermarket oh, sometime, I can't remember now, it was at some point when the restrictions were very tight. And I mentioned, I was talking to the woman who was serving me and she was really angry and she said, yeah, you know, I'd love to be like you. Um, I do anything to be put on furlough. So furlough in the UK is where, mm-hmm. I don't know what happened for you guys, but for where you were basically at home on 80% wages, um, but not able to work. And part of being on furlough was that you were not allowed to do work. So you couldn't work from home. You just, you didn't work. And that was not the case for me because I worked for myself. So actually, but but this, this she was so angry. You know, she was tired. She'd had to go every day to work. She'd had to, she saw it um, face this virus and be at risk and she had no option. And she saw someone like me going in to do my shopping and thought that I'd been sitting at home with my feet up getting 80% of my wages. And I've seen this, this tension played out in several ways. So there are people like, of, uh, you know, the, probably the, 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 the clearest example would be people working in mainstream healthcare who were suddenly in full PPE, having to face this situation, no time off. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. awful. And then we had the people who sat home and thought, wow, actually, hang on a minute. I don't mm. know if I want to pick up my old pace of life. They were probably driving and the pace was quite high for them. And then they had this time to sit and reflect on what they were doing. And a lot of them have just decided, well, I'm not going back to that. So we have, you know, what the media has termed the great resignation across the US and, and, and similarly in the UK, where people have just said, I'm not picking up that pace anymore. I think what we have now is we have the people who are still, particularly in healthcare, working, working, working. They still have had no chance <laughs> to build their resilience. And the people who had the time off, they're fighting the this almost... Um, uh, this kind of wave of like expectation to just pick up their old lives again. And, and a lot of them don't want to do it. So there's, there is quite a split of things going on that I see. So while the perspectives are different. Um, so what, if you like the subjective experience of the same situation is very different, 
in a way, everybody has arrived at the conclusion that deceleration is valuable, either in the form of it's a longing that we don't have, or it's a, it's a realization of, whoo, actually, while initially this was uncomfortable to decelerate it, there is something about it that is really valuable. And so I don't want to go back into a stressful situation. So recognizing the chronic stress situation that was there before yeah. I was kind of stopped forcefully. Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's look at this chronic stress situation. <laughs> so I feel like I was a bit of, I feel like most medical herbalists like myself and people who do similar jobs were kind of voices in the wilderness for many years about convalescence because, you know, I, I remember the moment I realized I was horrified with the way we were looking at how we expect people to just continue to function when things are falling apart. So um, any of you listeners in the UK may remember that there was an advert on television for a, a branded over-the-counter pain product, which I'm not going to name. Um, and the, it, was a, it was a while ago now. And it was a woman walking through the city and she had like clouds above her head all around her in a semicircle of all the things she was trying to remember. The school PE kit, the you know, dropping the kids off of school, the what's for dinner, the job, the whatever. And she's walking along looking terrible with an awful headache. And she's juggling all these things. She's trying, and they're kind of falling. And someone throws her in a pack of this painkiller to deal with her headache. And suddenly her face lights up in a big smile and she starts <laughs> to struggle and she just looks amazing. And I watched it and I thought, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Like, just take a painkiller and numb the fact that you have a ridiculous amount of things to do and just get on with it. And we're supposed to be happy about this. Like, what kind of a life is that? And so for me, you know, as a, as a medical herbalist, we often look back to our traditions, a lot of the evidence we're looking at, because, you know, let's face it, herbs don't always stand up brilliantly in, in, in clinical trials, because clinical trials are often looking at a single chemical and herbs have, you know, a few hundred in there. We don't even know the name of some of them. So the evidence is obviously often not there or the money is not behind it to do the trials. So a lot of the time we're looking at our empirical evidence, which is hundreds of years old, sometimes longer than that. And we're looking back a lot at the models of how did people use herbs when there was nothing else and they had to know them really, 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 really well. Um, now we have a tendency just to learn the headlines, you know, so we know, you know, St. John's work for as a, you know, for depression and things like that. But St. John's work is vastly more important than that in the herbal pharmacopoeia. But anyway, so we look at the ways of and often what we're looking at is just coming back to the basics. Like, is that body well hydrated? <laughs> is that body well rested? Has that body had nourishing food today? You know, has that body been exercised today? It's absolutely back to basics. So it's not about the next superfood and the next amazing extract that's come from, you know, outer Mongolia. And it's not about that. It's about the basic steps. And so often when I take my patients through those steps, they haven't even thought of those things. They just haven't, it hasn't occurred to them that they would be a problem. It's like, you know, and then, there's this thing about, you know, for example, for me, it's really important to attune yourself to what the seasons are doing. 
you know, so we talk about each person having their own sort of constitutional type where some people run really hot, some people run really cold. It figures that people who run hot might struggle a bit on a hot summer day. People who are cold are probably going to be much more comfortable. So how can we balance that by what we put into our bodies? And what I'm always saying when I'm teaching or I'm, I'm talking to my patients is stress. So getting back to your chronic stress point. Stress is a whole body response. Every cell in your, if you are actually facing a tiger, which is, you know, the old face the tiger, you know, fight the tiger, flee the tiger, because, you know, our bodies haven't changed a lot since we lived in caves, but the, the circumstances we are living in and what we expect from them has changed vastly. But they're still running on this ancient cave dwelling, fight, flight, freeze system. So if you're actually facing a tiger, your body's not really all that worried about whether you're going to catch a cold, which is why your immunity is depressed, but it should be depressed temporarily. It's not that bothered about whether you're going to digest your meal really very well in that moment, which is why all energy and function is taken away from digestion, you know, but it's meant to be temporary and restored immediately afterwards. And then, and all of the other things that, you know, come with it with the stress response. So because we don't face tigers anymore, we might face our boss, <laughs> your, your overfull inbox that you cannot get down to a number under a hundred. It might be your family situation. It could be debt. It could be those things that are triggering your stress response we can't just fight them and get away, especially with something like your boss who you have to face every day, right? Or someone on, on, in, your, you know, in your workplace who's particularly difficult to work with. And so these uh, systems in our body that are depressed by the stress response continue to be chronically depressed year upon year upon year upon year. So you end up with low-level digestive issues, you end up with low-level immune issues, you, you, all of those things. And for years, lots of people said, oh, it's not, it can't all be down to stress. And, and now we're kind of looking at it and saying, well, hang on a minute, a lot of it could be down to stress. We know those chemical cascades happen. We know that those interactions happen in the body. And we know that there are consequences. What we're not great at doing is recognizing those consequences because they're usually long-term and low level until they've been going on for quite some time. And recognizing consequences is one issue, right? Recognizing the underlying assumptions of what we deem as normal yeah. or questioning those is also really important. So we may say like, oh, I, I haven't realized that actually my digestion, my ability to digest food very well has decreased over the last five years, gradually, 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 or my ability to deal with, with infections or with, with inflammatory um, states. Yeah. Um, and yet I haven't really questioned why I ended up in this first place because it's normal that I'm commuting one and a half hours every morning in a crazy traffic and because the, everybody does right and it's normal that I work the hours that I do and it's normal that I and so on so so a lot of things are taken as a given yeah and not actually taken as um the cause of illness the cause of suffering and I also think that culturally we 
we still talk about stress and we expect people will feel anxious. So many people are stressed and they, they're not anxious. There's also, I think, a, a little bit of, a, you know, to be stressed is seen to be weak. You're not coping with a lot of that around. You're not at the top of your game. You're not, you know, so there's a weakness there when fared, which is absolutely not true. It's a natural state of your body. Hmm. But we do often conflate being stressed with being anxious. Now, for some people, that is going to be the case. But I know a lot of patients with specific constitutional types that you see it in, actually, who tend to be absolutely at the top of their game, in control of everything. They, they can also be super fit, all of the rest of it. And slowly in the background, you notice their blood pressure starts to go up and that's the mm. sign that there's a problem. And they are calm as you like, but if you, if you help with the stress, you find they don't have a, a cardiovascular issue, but what they do have is a chronic stress issue. So what in your experience is a really helpful way of recognizing whether I'm chronically stressed or not? And what are helpful ways of dealing with it that, you know, if I, if I recognize that mm, I might be, I might be one of those, I might meet these criteria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what, what is, what is available? Okay. So I would um, first of all, say that if you are living a normal inverted commas, what's normal, but a standard <laughs> society, normal Western style lifestyle, you're chronically stressed. <laughs> I think let's all just start from that. Because if you if what you have to reflect back on is that your body was designed to work at the living in a cave <laughs> uh, kind of lifestyle and just think how different that is. So I don't think most of us who are um, um, adults in, in Western Europe, say, or, you know, living a Western lifestyle who have got a job, who maybe have a family, who are running a house, you know, that's already a lot. And the thing that um, really comes out for me, um, as is normal in healthcare, a higher proportion of people who come to me for help tend to be women than men, um, you know, because we have this whole thing about men stepping forward and asking for help, you know, which is culturally known. The, the real car crash for women is that at this point, in, or in, when they get into their kind of 40s, and particularly, you know, and they are starting to notice hormonal changes going into menopausal times, at that point, their adrenals are so tired managing the chronic stress that they then have to step up and start getting involved in estrogen production. And that's why a lot of them find that this, the stress becomes unmanageable at that point. Mm-hmm. So I see that pattern happening a lot. Um, so things to do, I think, will first of all be thinking about, okay, if we assume that all of us are to some level chronically stressed because we're not working, we're working in a... a, a, a um, in a situation that our bodies were not designed for. But of course we can adapt because otherwise we wouldn't be here, right? And you know, it's not all doom and gloom. We need to just look at the areas of our lives, those simple things like our hydration. Are we hydrated well enough? You know, if you're really dehydrated, drinking lots of water is just gonna make you have to, you know, visit the toilet every 10 minutes. That's not gonna work. So, you know, actually, because if you think about it, a dry log pouring water on that, what happens? The water just rolls off it, right? So what you need is oil to, to, to massage into that, don't you? So it's things like slowing down the transit of water through your body by eating gloopy foods like, well, chia is very um, 
popular at the moment are good old fashioned porridge or things that hold on to fluid and slow it down. You'll look at your hydration, look at your sleep. You know, a lot of people will be working at shifts in healthcare, but are there things that you can do to mitigate that to help you get better rest? Look at, you know, um, how you're using things like caffeine. You know, are you enjoying your cup of tea that you're reaching for or your coffee? Or are you are you depending on the caffeine to try to bring you energy? Because at some point that's going to stop working when you start to become dependent on the caffeine for the energy. You find that either it just doesn't work or you become very sensitive. You get that horrible jittery feeling. So what can you be hydrating yourself with that is more uh, useful to you, for example? So I do. um a lot of talking about um uh can you so one of the jobs that i do not just in clinic is also um uh, consulting for twinings tea so we're helping to create really good uh um uh herbal teas that people can there's lots of other brands out there doing it but obviously they're my favorites so because uh but but you kind of put in a you know, it's like, can you swap out that next cup of tea that you're probably not going to enjoy and you're probably just reaching for it just because you're in the habit of reaching for it, but it's actually not doing any favors. Could you get smart about that? Could you pick something that would be supportive to your adrenals and calming for you that day? Could you reach for, you know, chamomile or something, you know, that tastes amazing, but has got herbal uh, um, ingredients that can be supportive to you? Could you go to taking something that has guarana in it that's got slower release caffeine that might not be so jaggy for your system? Like, how can you do that when you're taking a snack? Can you can you make sure it's it's well balanced for you? Can you stop, you know, spiking your blood sugar? So it's, it's all those things, but it really, really is back to complete basics. And without those basics in place, the body's always, you know, you can get into these sort of, blood sugar, insulin spiking situations, and then you're never going to feel great. It's really just taking it right back and not being complicated about it, I think. And in your experience, I mean, this, as you say, this is the basics, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then there are smart ways to hand, smarter ways to go about the basics, as you've outlined a few. What is the what is the main enemy here? What's in the way? Like, why is it that when I look in the in the hospitals and I look at pretty much any hospital that I worked in um, in so many years, there is tons of carbohydrate in in the canteens. You see, basically, eighty percent is carbohydrates, yeah. um, and of that, probably again, eighty percent is such free sugars. It's just sugary, yeah. right? And it's, it's incredible. And, and this is what is consumed. Um, and this is consumed in tons, right? And then it's kind of tea, coffee, Coke, and all the carbs, right? Yeah. Now, these are all healthcare professionals. So they all know what you just said. Know it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't do it. What is it? What's in the way? So I think one of the things is that when you are already tired, mm and depleted in whatever area is depleted. You know, that old, good old limbic system in the brain is kind of, if your blood sugars drop because you've just done a night shift or you've been on shift for ages or you can't go to the loo on a break because, you know, you're in your PPE and so you don't want to drink because you want to take the toilet break that, you know, all of that. 
when you start from that place, your your you know your survival mechanisms in your brain are hardwired for you to pick the sugariest, fattiest, quickest brain food you can get your hands on. And overriding a survival instinct when you are already exhausted is really hard because it's called a survival instinct for a reason. You know, it overrides your willpower, which is coming you know, from your sort of prefrontal cortex, you know, kind of willpower behaviors, it's going to override it every time you're setting yourself up for a failure. If you go into that situation exhausted and guess what? Most of the people in the canteen in the places where you are are going to be pretty tired. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, it's that thing about, you know, never go food shopping when you're hungry because you're going to make really bad choices. Mm -hmm. And I'm not one, I'm not, you know, a sort of wholesome whole foods kind of a person it's like it's all about balance there is a time to reach for the donut and the cappuccino absolutely but also I think that thing that um you know about trying to swap out your caffeinated drinks for something else like sure have your coffee in the morning it's fine but like don't keep doing it all day because you're probably not even enjoying it is that making a different choice when you're tired is already exhausting right so what we tend to do is because we are so tired and there are so many choices in modern life is that we, um, we find ways to not choose on the micro level because we've got to keep everything we've got for the major choices. So what that means is, you know, I want a cuppa. So in the UK, we have this great phrase, a cuppa. Now, a cuppa generally means the drink the hot drink that you consider to be your one that you have several times a day i fall into this trap all the time too so mine would be a chai tea right be a chai tea bag with a little bit of milk in it that's a cuppa when my husband says would you like a cuppa that's what i mean for me to want anything else requires effort what is it that I want? Mm, do I want peppermint? Mm, do I want this? Mm, do I want a cold drink? I don't know. I'm really busy. I have a full inbox and patience and my dispensary needs attending to. I just want a cuppa. And so I think that one, it becomes very easy for the providers of those sugary carbohydrate snacks to just have what everyone keeps asking for because they are taking a financial risk to offer, you know, I don't know, falafels and a, and a, a you know, I don't know, a lassie or something. And people are not going to have it because they're like, oh, what's that? But there's another thing, which is the people in the queue are just too tired to make a different choice. That's really valuable, right? So you say, so a couple of things. So let's kind of, let's see, let's summarize a little bit and then dive deeper into the art of convalescence. Okay. So we're, I think what we touched on was one, the first step of the art of convalescence <laughs> is to recognize that we are in a state of chronic stress or that we are somehow in a depleted state. Yeah. And the very fact that we are recognizing that means we need to have the liberty to see that, which means we need to have a little bit of bandwidth already. So when we're fully stressed out, that's probably not even going to happen. So we need a friend, we need a colleague, we need to somebody else to give us a nudge. Right? so that at least we start seeing. Um, a second step then is that we actually give ourselves the permission to be exhausted. <laughs> 
to be depleted because that doesn't work very well with a health professional's image <laughs> that, I mean, we're always there. We're always ready. We're, we're there for others. We're never depleted. We're always helping others and we're fine. Right. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with us. Right. We wouldn't be depressed. Would we? Oh no, no. Right. We wouldn't be exhausted. Oh no, no. We can do another night shift. Of course. And then we brag about like 72 hours being on night shift or on, you know, being on a shift for 72 hours and we even feel heroic about it. Right. And there is a heroism. And, and even, you know, I'm not in that system by any means, but I notice sometimes if I get sick and I have to cancel a clinic, sometimes patients are really upset with me. What do you yeah. think you're sick? Well, I guess. I'm not a superwoman. Like, yes, I have a dispensary out there and I can get all the medicine, but I still, my body requires to be sick sometimes, you know, there is right. that. So then a third step is to um, recognize that if we give ourselves permission to be exhausted mm -hmm. and we give ourselves permission that this is a little difficult um, mm -hmm. and to actually stay there, that means a change is actually due to happen, right? We should actually change something about our lives because this is not a sustainable model in the long term. So now the question is, do we actually have enough effort? Do we have enough energy left to make that change? As you said, you know, if we're fully depleted, changing is, is really difficult. So let's let's go a little bit deeper into this. So now we are we are in a society where there's this kind of general assumption that that efficiency and stress and high performance and pushing harder is 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 the accepted kind of song that everybody's singing, and it's kind of normal. How are you? Well, I'm pretty stressed at the moment. Oh, you're too stressed. Yeah, everybody's stressed, right? So we kind of agree we agree on being stressed, right? And it's not an exception. It's more the norm. And then we get into this point where we're saying, well, I actually want to change my situation. That means I now need to start thinking about what does it take for me to become to a state of, of fullness, of, of overflow. And as a physician, that's where I'm really struggling because I learned all the aunties, right? So I would maybe then in, in kind of my training terms, I would say like, oh, you sound like a little bit depressed, right? So you, it sounds like you need a little bit of something that gives you energy, you know, so we push you a little bit more so you feel more energy, energized. And then uh, we give you maybe some antidepressants and maybe you have an infection. So maybe what about some anti-inflammatories? Oh, and you have this sore stomach. So maybe some antacids. So I'm realizing I'm going into all of this anti-anti thing and I'm really strong in the anti-world as a, as a clinician, right? So now, what about the pro world, right? We have probiotics, good start, right? Um, but there isn't really a lot in terms of how can we really build health? How can we build, kind of recharge that, and that, that battery? Um, so focusing on this rather than focusing on getting rid of the signs and symptoms of stress. Let's, let's go down there. Let's, let's unpack this yeah. a little bit. There was one thing I just wanted to say around convalescence first that just occurred to me when you were speaking there, that there's two things that are happening. One of them is this convalescence required from our chronic state of stress. But there's also the really old fashioned, because of course, chronic stress didn't really exist previously to the uh -huh. last hundred years. There is this old fashioned convalescence from illness. And if you find it difficult to stop and think back on your stress and getting space there, um, 
please remember that every time you are ill, you have just used up more reserves than you currently do. And that convalescence would be almost the, you know, we, we, uh, we talked before about the different parts of illness, you know, there's the acute phase and then there's the kind of the getting better phase. And when you turn the corner and there is another third phase there that we forget about. And that is important every time you've had an anything, be it major or minor, you have used up a bit more. So there's two kind of different kinds of convalescence going on. And, and that one is a little more, um, depending on what you've just been through. Um, in terms of having had a virus or something like that or an operation or whatever, you know, that's a bit more intense. And then we have this convalescence for the kind of life that we're trying to live, right, in these bodies that weren't built for this kind of life and this kind of move towards well-being. So they are slightly different. Um, what so I if, I, if I hear you correctly, sorry to interrupt, let's just get this clear. So one yeah. is like we're, we're in a steady state of chronic stress and overwhelm. Yeah. And we want to see how can we balance this yeah. steady state. So it's a little bit in, in like in the open sea, maybe we can talk about the swell, right? Yeah. So we have kind of the swell coming up and a little bit going down and kind of the ebb and the tide. So, so it's a little bit like that. So a basic rhythm of energy expense and back. Yeah. And then there are the special events like an illness or a trauma or, and they create peaks of energy expense and they need also if you like troughs or they need, they need the counterbalancing moment as well. Okay. Yeah. So two exactly. different rhythms. They're like the wind wave or yeah. something in the water. Exactly. Lovely. Yeah. And right. one of them is more intense than the other one. So one of them is right. the, is the daily kind of push and pull of modern life and making sure we don't get to a burnout state. And the other one is the old good old fashioned, you know, where I used to live in a village just near here where I am now, the convalescent home was built. It's huge. It's been a community center for years. You know, there were convalescent homes all over the place. My husband's from the south of Germ Germany. We discussed before, you know, the fact mm -hmm. that people would go, you know, and they would have, a, I believe it's called the Kur for two weeks. They would go to this place where we met and worked, where they would have massage and amazingly nutritional food and knight buds, you know, the <laughs> baths and walking in the forest. And it, it was still, when we when I first traveled there, it still happened. That's how that place got their income. And then suddenly, well, we don't need that anymore. And it was cut because of financial reasons, but it doesn't mean the body doesn't still need it. Isn't it interesting? Like when you talk about this, everybody goes like, ah, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be nice, right? And this is this whole wellness industry that is actually flourishing on that assumption, right? Yeah. So, so we all know how, about the importance and it's kind of been moved out of healthcare into the wellness sector. And it's now seen as a luxury. Right, it's a luxury. So that's so interesting. So convalescence that you're describing as, a, as an essential life rhythm, mm -hmm. you know, as just you can't have only the, the upper parts of your sinus wave, you have to have both, right, um, to be sustainable then that we're kind of excluding that. And a lot of research in, in, in kind of medical research is demonstrating like, oh, we can do all these operations with, we can shorten hospital stay and we can do all of this in outpatient and we can get more patients through in less time. And, and then they're kind of going home and don't know what to do because they're realizing like, I, okay, I could just about walk out of the hospital and make it home, but really I don't feel whole and healed yet. No. And a lot of fear comes with that too. Mm -hmm. you know, what is that fear? 
the fear that I, I, a lot of patients talk to me about if they've had, if they've been in hospital, they hand over responsibility for their well-being to the medical team. And if they've been through a traumatic time or a serious illness, taking back that responsibility for, for keeping your body working and, and, and gaining trust, I think it's a lot to do with gaining trust. A lot of us, we, it's happened to me before when I've had to go into hospital, I, I, I was unable to keep my body well. I went into a hospital environment, I handed over the care of my body to the medical team who were amazing. And then I had to leave and I was frightened because I was having to come home and be responsible again. And I had lost trust in my body. And that's a hard journey. I notice a lot of people, particularly when they get older, they're scared about what could go wrong. What do we do? We don't know. And that trust in your body takes a long time. I talk about that with patients a lot, building up trust that their body's not going to, they see it letting them down, you know? And, and there's something at the moment about, of course, the work has to be done to get the waiting list down. People need operations, they need seeing, they need, you know, but um, I had a patient contact me yesterday and say they'd just been discharged with medication that they didn't understand what to do with because it had been explained when they were still quite woozy from the procedure. And they said, what do I do? And I said, I'm a, I'm a medical herbalist. I can't tell you what to do with that. You've got to go back to, you know, find some way of getting in touch with that you know, that word and find out from them, I, I can't do that. And that sense of the follow-up not being there. And I think a lot of the follow-up is confidence building. We know after trips, slips and falls, you know, in the elderly, it's about not being in hospital too long so that they are um, de-skilled, but at the same time, helping them build their confidence up again so that they're less likely to have another trip because they are not confident in their step, for example. So thank you. You're mentioning two really important parts. So, and they're very, in a way, very non-medical in terms of the current paradigm. And that's interesting. That's why I love your expression, the lost art of convalescence, is we've kind of pushed some part of it to the wellness arena. And we've pushed another part to the science somehow. Uh, it's kind of just pushed away it's kind of ignored it's just like we don't want to see that anymore but it's really important you talk about you talked about two things one is taking back responsibility and another one is to build confidence and those are two different steps and then a third step is actually to kind of build energy again right or to allow and what what does that look like is it an active process to build energy or is it more like letting go and let energy enter into the body again. It's let a, it build up by itself. It's a bit of both, I think. And actually what you just said there, I just had this realization when you, when you, you know, speaking to you as a, as a medical doctor, part of the paradigm that is an issue, I think, for medical colleagues in terms of pushing yourselves too hard and having mm -hmm. have the bravado is the fact that the patient hands of responsibility I mean if you've ever had to you know my family my my father died a few years ago but he went through years of ill health mm. and the relief when an ambulance turned up mm. and could handle responsibility for keeping him alive literally to someone else and there's that thing about you put yourself in the hospital you hand over responsibility to the doctor so the fact that we look to the doctor and actually I just had this sudden realization 
the doctor is stepping to meet that I'm going to make everything okay. Mm-hmm. That feeds that exactly. mask, doesn't it? Of exactly. I can't be ill. I cannot stop. I can't be weak. I cannot be stressed. I must keep going. We feed all of that. So we're in this relationship as doctor and patient and one is feeding the other one, isn't it? Right. But actually we're not ascending in a sustainable health model here. We're actually depleting each other. Yeah. Because the doctor is in a way actually taking away the responsibility, which in a way is temporarily weakening the patient rather than actually keeping them engaged Mm -hmm. to a level of degree. And we're just sharing the burden during a time of travel together. And at the end, we're kind of abandoning the patient, if you like, from a patient's perspective. And, And then we assume that there is no guidance or no company needed anymore during a really vital last phase of the healing process. Yeah the convalescent phase when they are trying to when they then have to reassume that responsibility and 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 do that yeah do you have a sense for why medicine is so comparatively poor um even in you know in in when it comes to convalescence like the rehab part is 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 pretty close to that and some of palliative care is really kind of yeah. trying to get into this right mm-hmm. so so palliative care that is conceptualized a little bit beyond the immediate kind of near death experience with palliative care in a wider sense is kind of aiming to explore this. And, um, and also the rehab part is trying to explore this. And yet the focus of palliative care and rehab is still a lot on kind of what is the weakness, what's the deficiency and how can we compensate for that? So we're still not quite in that transition to really promote convalescence kind of nurture convalescence why is that why is this such a ignored or not seen I don't part think, of healing i think that part of it comes down to the tools we have in our boxes mm-hmm. we have very different tools what i notice about midwifery as well as palliative care mm-hmm. is that they are both much more open to bringing in other tools like in midwifery now and I think across Scotland certainly in my local area all the midwives are trained in aromatherapy and they Mm -hmm. will do aromatherapy massage during labor a lot of them are also trained in hypotherapy Mm and we did have a number of doctors in the in uh, GPs in the UK a few years ago less so I think now who also trained in homeopathy and that was a thing for a while but homeopathy has not got such a good standing in the UK now um, I know it's different you know, um, uh, maybe where you are um, I think that there's um, I think it's about the tools in the box so for example when people come to me and they have a situation that I know herbs cannot deal with mm-hmm. I am saying to them, I'm not the right person to help you. I think you need to go back to your GP. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of doing the same thing. You know, I'm mm-hmm. saying, look, th- this isn't something for me. I had someone the other day whose blood pressure was so ridiculously high. I was like, look, you really don't want herbs and you need to get to your GP now, like now, mm-hmm. um, because the pharmaceuticals are what are going to do this for you. The herbs are not going to do this for you. It's Or if they, if they do, it's going to take too long. It's too risky. Don't. So... I think that I look at the tools in my box and I say, well, what can I do with these? And I think a lot of the time, the GPs that I know are looking at the tools in their box and they're saying antidepressant, antibiotic, anti this, anti that. That's what I have, right? So if you're time strapped, 
and you need to get through your patients and you mm-hmm. need to make sure you've done your due diligence and they are going. If you don't have another tool to offer them, of course, you're not going to continue that relationship with them, are you? Because you don't have the tools. So mm-hmm. it's about, you know, so I, 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 and what I love about herbal medicine mm-hmm. is that it's tonic medicine. So mm-hmm. this is an idea that comes you know, from way back when when the herbalists split off from what was going to become the, the, you know, the pharmaceutical model began, really. And the herbalists split off and, and convalescence remained part of what we did. And it's about a tonic. And a lot of people say to me, particularly if I come across people who are quite anti-alternative or complementary health, and they can make fun of, oh, yeah, but you used to, you know, smear the chest in mustard powder and use, you know, all these ridiculous recipes and, and it didn't work and all those people died. And I'll say, yeah, because we didn't have an alternative then. We yeah. have an alternative for acute medicine now. The alternative for acute medicine is either surgery done safely or it's <laughs> pharmaceutical medicine. <laughs> but pharmaceutical medicine is not good at being a tonic. So right. by, what do I mean by that? A tonic for me in the Victorian kind of aspect is taking a medicine that will help to build strength. You asked me about how you build energy a bit back before we got, I, I mm-hmm. took it on a different track again. It, it, the, the, med, the herbs come into the body apart from a few, which are used in tiny doses because their therapeutic ratio is so small. Most herbs will go into the body and will support the body to function better. Can I tell you exactly how they do that? No, I cannot. Mm-hmm. Because of those several hundred chemicals working in synergy together and the fact that most medical herbs, we would never prescribe one herb. We usually use, a, a, we, we layer them together in prescriptions of six and seven, something like that usually. I use tinctures mainly. So we're putting these herbs together to support function. And the idea with herbs is always get you to the best you can be, stabilize you there, then start to drop the medicine away because the idea is that your body should be able to do it by itself after that. That's what we're good at. If I break my leg, I would say, or I have a heart attack, do not take me to a herbalist. I don't want to see one. That's not what we're good at. But what we can do is come alongside and support. So, for example, herbs like um, um, Vitex, Agnes Cassis, which is important hormonal herb, works on the pituitary gland, you know, um, tweaking up what, what, her, what hormones the body's asking for. Herbs like Hawthorne, which is well used, I know, in Western Europe for uh, blood pressure. We use it for low and high blood pressure. How can it possibly do that? You find that time and again with herbs. It can raise blood pressure that is a bit too low and it can lower blood pressure that's a bit too high it's a normalizer it's a mm-hmm. balancer it's a tonic mm-hmm. i remember my grandmother used to there was this this liquid you used to get and um, when i was little and it was like rich in iron and b vitamins and molasses molasses and all this kind of thing and she would say that's a tonic and you had to take it for a week after you were ill to build you back up again mm-hmm. That is what, and it, I think it's tonic medicine and um, sort of managing some chronic conditions that don't need to be managed with a fine laser tuned way. Like we um, we talked earlier about, um, I used to help run the National Helpline for epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Well, that is something I would never treat with herbs because we need that laser sharp, fine tuned pharmaceutical intervention there. 
However, could I maybe help reduce stress levels, which might be a trigger for some people's seizures? Yes, I can. Right. You know, so it's it's that coming alongside, seeing what the body needs. I quite often say to my patients, all I can do is to the best of my ability, put together a mix for you and ask your body, is this what you need? And mm. your body will tell us. And I, so I think it's the, it's the tools that make it so different. When you, when you tell people, when you tell people, ask your body, I don't know what your experience is, but sometimes if I do that, then people look at me like in squared eyes, right? <laughs> they go like, I'm, I'm what? Like, what do you mean by ask my body? I'm not getting it. <laughs> How would you describe that? How do you ask your body and don't ask your, if you don't ask your doctor, but you ask your body, what, what's that process like? Okay, so first of all, I would think the people who come to seek out a medical herbalist are probably a little bit more aware that I might use different terms than that, as opposed to going to a medical doctor where that might feel like, well, what? Um, so I think it's about, so I'm very meticulous about writing down in someone's own words what their symptoms feel like to them, get them to describe the pain. Is it hot? Is it cold? Does it move? Is it aching? Is it sharp? Is it, what is it? What are the qualities? So we talk a lot about quality. So someone says headache. I'm like, that doesn't really mean much. Where, how, all of those. And then I get them to think about whether it's changed or not. And also I get them to think about whether, um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm really talking in terms, not so much of whether their body likes those herbs or not, Um but more in terms of how their body responds over a couple of weeks of taking those herbs. What's their body telling them? Are they feeling a bit better? Are they feeling worse? Are they, you know, worse is not often something that happens, but it can. Um, I had a really interesting patient this morning. It just made me think, actually, she's a little girl. Yeah. I find children are so well tuned into what their bodies want. want. Yeah. So this little girl has terrible eczema. Oh my goodness, the poor little soul. And her mum gave her a tincture that she was recommended from home. So she comes from Eastern Europe. She was given this tincture that had wormwood in it, right? You've ever tasted wormwood. It's the most bitter thing ever, 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 ever. So this little girl quite happily took this wormwood and other things tincture before she came to me. And then her mum explained that she'd done this. It didn't help. And could I help? And I'm thinking, she took wormwood? Wow. Okay, so I put together a mix for this little girl. And she took it once and she just said, this isn't right for me. This isn't right for my body. She's four. And she cried every time her mom tried to take it. So we know she's fine taking medicine. She's fine taking super bitter stuff. This was really nothing in comparison to that. And the situation didn't get better. And I was like, right, I'm going to rethink this. I sent her another tincture. She said, she tried it and she said, this is better. We're five days into that treatment. Her skin is much better. Hmm. There's this thing about like, you, you know, we, we need to listen in. Do we lean in or lean out to something? I say that a lot as well. When you, are you fighting, taking your medicine every day? Like I really, oh, it's really a struggle. Or are you like, this is going to make me better? You know, do you, yeah. This you is so, this is so interesting what you're saying, because I think what you're describing is that we are actually looking for another type of outcome for another type of response mm -hmm. than what then the outcomes that we're using in in medical research right now mm -hmm. right so in medical research we'd say patient is able to walk after you know self-mobilization after surgery for example or patient is able to eat again after 
you know, some gastrointestinal illness or mm-hmm. patient. So we have certain outcomes and they are, they have to do with normal function, normalization of function mm-hmm. at its, at its kind of gro- at the gross, at the, at the basic level. Yes. And so it's a way that they are in many ways, very humble outcome markers because they're very, you know, it's like not dead anymore. Great. Okay. Next one <laughs> eating again. Well, great. You know, <laughs> very humble. Now, <laughs> now what you're, what you're talking about is, is a very refined look into what is actually my inner state. And then when I take something, what is the resonance between what I'm taking and, and what does my body actually, what is the response of my body here? Mm. What does it feel like? And that's a sort of questioning. That's an introspective. That's not an objectified description from the outside, but that's actually a subjective experience from the inside. And that's something that has just not been part of medical research. It's not part of our outcome markers of most conditions. Because it's not easy to measure. But because it's not easy to measure, it doesn't mean it's not important. And I think that's what worries me about the way research goes sometimes. We're following what's easy to measure, what is measurable. That's why herbs don't stand up well in clinical trials. The clinical trials were created for pharmaceuticals. They, they, they showcase them well. They, they perform. You, can, you can't follow what a herb is really doing. And when you were going through that list of like, they are eating well or they're mobilized or they're whatever, what I'm inside me, I'm absolutely screaming, yes, but how do they feel? Exactly. How do they feel? It doesn't matter to them. Like right. their life, that's amazing. Yeah. But how do they feel? Because that's how they're going to, that um, influences how they will cope. We all know if we have had a good night's sleep and we feel okay, our pain may be level, maybe the same, but pain is utterly subjective and it will feel less if we're better rested, right. we're happier. And if we are also not rested and unhappy or scared or frightened, our pain is going to be way less manageable because it's about how we feel about it. Right. And we usually end up with a healthcare professional because of a subjective experience and not because of an objectively measurable something. So that's, that's the outcome we're actually looking for as a, as a patient is a change in the subjective experience. And as, as healthcare professionals, we are not really trained so far in, in helping the patient to, 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 in accompanying the patient on the journey of staying with this subjective experience, mm-hmm. taking that on, giving ourselves the permission to have this experience and actually then gradually, gradually seeing the change and witnessing the change and feeling into what may be helpful here together with a healthcare professional. Wow. Thank you. Uh, This is really, thank you for a deep dive, Pamela. You're welcome. (laughs) Looking into the drivers and and some of the mechanisms of, of convalescence and where we are, where this is such an uncharted ground, really, um, this convalescent health. (laughs) The most important thing is if you think of convalescence, if that feels like an unusual term, think of it like building resilience. Mm -hmm stashing something away so that when the next wave hits you've got something to meet it with you know build that resilience building it through rest, building it through nutrition building it through all those other things and then and then you've got something in the bank if you like 
right now a lot of people out there don't have anything in the bank and that's that worries me because they have nothing to meet the next big challenge wow thank you thanks a lot beautiful conversation let's say between um a physician interested in convalescence and and the perspectives of herbal medicine and and a herbalist like yourself if if people want to find out more about what you do and what you think and how you deal with convalescent stages how would people find you so people can find me on my website which is pamelaspence.co.uk i'm also really active on facebook and instagram so there i'm just pamela spence herbalist um, and um, there's also if people are interested in understanding how they can reduce their caffeine as a first step towards building resilience um, I have a free guide that you can sign up for through either of those places and um, that will get emailed to you fabulous thank you so much Pamela we'll put those links in there in the notes and make them available thank you for a great conversation welcome thank you we'll meet very soon again this has been a Heart-Based Medicine production. Thanks for tuning in. You'll find all the links in the show notes. Until next time.